We're in the book of Revelation, chapter 3. Let me do a little quick review. Um, You guys know this. I've said this almost every week, uh, but this is a revelation of Jesus. The book of Revelations can be daunting, overwhelming at times. Uh, I'd like to like kind of joke around, but it's not revelations. It's revelation. It's one. It's one revelation. It's of Jesus. This book is not just to warn us about end time events as much as we can get a better perspective of who Jesus is. John's on the island of Patmos. He's probably in his 90s. He encounters the person of Jesus, his, his best friend, essentially. John was a disciple who Jesus loved. And now he sees Jesus on this island as an old man. And he's, he doesn't see Jesus the way he remembered him, the suffering servant who came to die, who rose again. He sees Jesus ruling and reigning in glory. I mean, we have this unique perspective in Revelation of Jesus. I mean, the way he describes him in Revelation chapter 1, it's very symbolic, the terms he uses, because it's like this glorious way in which he sees Jesus. This book shows Jesus in that Revelation 19 way, Revelation 20 type of way, where he's coming back on that white horse, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, ruling and reigning. And I know we have the gospel of uh, the gospels, the four gospels kind of view of Jesus, which I love, just I love the gospels. My encouragement is always being one of the four, reading through that. But at the same time, there's something about seeing Jesus the way Revelation presents him. That my own personal life, like the way if I can view Jesus through the way the Bible describes him, I think it'll change how we worship, how we live, how we serve, how we give, just how we do everything. Just seeing Jesus as truly the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so Revelation is a revelation of Jesus, and it gives us this fresh perspective of him. Now, Jesus is specifically speaking to seven churches, and we've said this, but keep this in mind. Jesus really cares about the church. Like, Jesus loves the church, so much so that he speaks into the church. He knows what's going on historically. Like, he knows what's happening. We've always kind of walked through the context. He knows what's happening among them. He knows maybe where they're erring, where they're going astray. He knows what they're doing well. But Jesus pays attention. And this is a crazy, I mean, these are seven local churches, seven specific churches. And you think about this, we're part of the, the, the global capital C church, absolutely, but we're also part of a local church in which we have our own issues, in which we have the things that we're doing well, the things that we could grow in. And I want to say this, Jesus knows that. And my hope is as we walk through this, that this would be a way for us to say, Jesus, let your word kind of be a mirror to us. Where do you want us to grow? What do you want to do? It's almost like we're, we're trying to teach through this exegetically, like break it down, yes, but almost as well prophetically saying, Jesus, what is it you want to say to us right now in this moment? Like, where can we grow? What is it you want to do? What is it you want to accomplish within us? So I kind of want to invite everyone into that. You know, I, I, we were praying this morning, and I was praying, we were praying with someone, and I, he said, you know, God, let us, even when we're finished with this, just keep this in the forefront of our mind. Like, I don't want to be done with these seven churches and think we're ever like, we're done. This is, a, this is a great text for constantly for us to go back to and to kind of evaluate where are we at with you, God. And so I want to do that week after week. Like, God, where are we at with you when it comes to these seven churches? And what is it you want to do within us? So let's kind of review. Ephesus. Remember, Ephesus was a church that had good doctrine, but they left their first love. That was the first church. Good doctrine, but left their first love. Smyrna was a healthy church, but it was the persecuted church. If there's a church we want to be like, like I mentioned, it's Smyrna and Philadelphia. But Smyrna was the persecuted church. Jesus has nothing negative to say about the church of Smyrna, which is incredible. Uh, The next church we looked at was Pergamum. Pergamum was the compromising church. It started compromising in its theology, and it led to its lifestyle being led differently. Uh, The fourth church was Thyatira. Thyatira was the corrupt church. This is the church that became corrupt really in all of its, its ways. Then the fifth church was Sardis. Sardis is known as the dead church. 
Jesus says to Sardis, I know you think you're alive, but you're dead. This was the, the church that was just cold to Jesus. They were dead. Then the sixth church last week we looked at, and it's finally, like, it's nice to have an encouraging church, wasn't it? Uh, the sixth church was Philadelphia. This was the faithful church. This was the church, Jesus says, whom, whom I loved. I've loved you. Obviously, Jesus loves the church, but there's something about this church that says you've been faithful. He has nothing negative to say about the church of Philadelphia. And today, we're going to be looking at the church of Laodicea. Laodicea kind of goes down as that lukewarm church. I mean, this is what Jesus says. You are that. You're lukewarm. Uh, this is a church, if we had to be honest, probably best represents the Western church for maybe the last century. This is the church that I think we can maybe learn the most from. This is the church where I think Jesus is trying to say to us, just wake up, myself included. Like I have lukewarm tendencies, as we'll talk about this, but you'll see. That I, had to, I have to just kind of go, God, I have some lukewarm tendencies in my life. I got to surrender. Like I'm not okay with this. I can't be okay with this. This is the church that I think Jesus is trying to get our attention in our hearts. Because he has some pretty serious uh, words for this church. So, again, if you, if you are new or whatever, just welcome. Get ready for, like, an intense uh, message. Um, but this is just one of those churches that I think Jesus just wants to speak to us, moving our hearts. Like, we want to be open to what the Lord wants to do as we study his word through this church. How do we not be like this church? How do we learn from this church? How do we acknowledge those tendencies that are in this church that are also in us, where we can learn and grow from it? So I want to explore this with you. See, this church... It's kind of like they lost their passion for Jesus. You know, they lost their fire. You know, my wife and I, uh, for Christmas, I can't really say we, I sort of helped. We built a fire pit in our backyard. I don't know how, but for, <laughs> I somehow I convinced my wife, I'm like, hey, Kimber, like, I want to tell you so I don't like surprise you and ruin it, but I, I want to get you a fire pit for Christmas. And, month, and she got so excited. Once I said that, she's like, okay. And she went out that day and she built it herself. So husbands, I don't know how I did that, but I convinced my wife to build her own Christmas gift. It was great. Um, I don't know how. She just got so excited. She went to the store. We went to Home Depot that day and we built like a little fire pit outside. And you know, there's something about fires, right? There's something about looking into the fire, staring at a fire. I feel like I've become like this great philosopher when I'm sitting by a fire. I'm like, I think I can cure cancer. Like, I don't know. I just love what fires do. I love how you can focus and just think and daydream. And the, the Bible talks a lot about fires. Fires a lot of times speak of just spiritual vitality, of spiritual life. You know, you think about how God himself appeared to Moses in a, in a burning bush, in a fiery bush. God led the nation of Israel in a, in a pillar of fire by uh, night. You just think about how God consumes sacrifices a couple different times by fire from heaven. The, the point is, this fire so often has spoken of like life and spiritual life. And if you know anything about a fire, you have to tend a fire. Like you have to keep the fire. Like how do you tend the fire? Like the fire it might come, right, supernatural like it did in the Old Testament. But how do you tend the fire? You know, if you've been with a fire, been at a fire pit, gone camping, you know you have to like blow on it. You have to stir it around. You have to like kind of put the wood back closer together again. You kind of have to poke at it a little bit. And I think that this is what Jesus is trying to do. He's like, I need, to, I need to create this fire again within you. I need to poke you a little bit. He's going to blow on them in a sense, like speak the word of God into them and try to make that fire come back alive. And so this is what my hope and prayer is that God would do this for me personally, for you guys as well, for us collectively, that Jesus poke us, prod us, kind of renew that fire maybe we once had for the Lord, that spiritual life we once had. That Jesus would just wake us up to it. So we're going to read Revelation chapter 4, verse th uh, 14 uh, through 22. We're going to read this all the way through, and then we'll pray, and then just, just spend some time asking the Lord to speak to us through his text. Can we do that? Yeah? You guys ready? You guys ready for this? I don't know if I am. All right, Revelation chapter 3, verse 4. Here's what Jesus says to the last church. It says, verse 14, Jesus speaks, And to the angel, or the messenger of the church of the Laodiceans write, 
These things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Welcome to the exchange. So glad you guys are here. Verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As we've kind of said every week, the Spirit is speaking to the churches, and to the churches at large, to us. This is a word to a specific church, but we need ears to hear from the Spirit this morning. Amen? Let's just pray for a second. Pray for those ears. Father, we just thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. God, we thank you that whom you love, you, you chastise, you chase, you, you pursue after, you rebuke, you correct. We just thank you. Um, Jesus, we need you. I need you. Lord, I ask that you just do something within us. God, something only you can do, that you'd breathe on us, that, Lord, we'd receive from you your spirit, that your word would just bring life to us, that it'd be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, God. God, I just ask that you would do something very unique um, here in South Florida. Jesus, wake us up to what matters. Lord, we don't want to just be this, in this lukewarm state any longer. Jesus, we just ask that you just move and speak in your precious name. Amen. You know, one of my uh, biggest pet peeves in life is being locked out of places. Like, I hate being locked out. I know no one likes that, but I just really hate that feeling, like when you did it to yourself especially. I feel like if, if you can be locked out of a place, I've been locked out of it. Like I've always, I, you know, like the classic, I've been locked out of my car, my home. I don't know what it is, but whenever I go to a store with my wife, I always try to open the locked door, like, and I always hate it. I hate that feeling. Where like everyone's around, you're like, oh, why'd I do that? Like I always open the wrong, but I hate that. I hate the idea of just being locked out. There's something about that. When you see your keys sitting on your front seat and you did that, and you're like, this is my car. And then you start looking around, like who thinks I'm a burglar trying to break in? Like, there's just something about, I hate the feeling of being locked out. My, my daughter, who just turned two this week, uh, you might know, I, I'm a little bit, you know, kind of proud dad, love her. She's two years old, but she's in this funny little phase, it's so cute to me, where she likes to go into a room and lock the door. And so, like, I, she, I see her, like, I see the look on her face. She looks at me like I'm going to do it. So, the other day, she does that. She runs into my room, and then I see her close it, and she presses the little button and locks the door. And I'm like, Kinsley! I'm like, open the door! She's two. She just turned two. And then by the time, like, we have this little, like, lock thing, I unlock it, I get in, I see 
sister walk into my bathroom, look at me, close the door, and lock it. I'm like, ah! I don't know. She just, and she thinks it's hilarious. Like, you hear her laughing. I'm like, how are you like this at two already? But she thinks it's so funny. And there's, there's just something about even being locked out of, like, this is mine. Like, I'm locked out of my room, or I'm locked out of my house. Like, it's weird when you feel locked out of something you own. This is a bizarre thought, but think about it this way. Jesus is saying, I'm locked out of this church. Like, Jesus was locked out of his own church. That's an incredibly overwhelming and intimidating thought to think that the church, in, in a sense, can do that. That Jesus goes, I'm not even welcome in my own place. I'm, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. The door's shut. This is mine. The door's shut and I'm on the outside. What a crazy thought. You know, last week to the church of Philadelphia, there was a similar thought. He talked to the, the, the church of Philadelphia. He goes, there's a door that's set before you and it's open. And usually this openness speaks of like, uh, again, kind of walking into what God has for you like gospel opportunities, there's an open door to the church of Philadelphia, but to the church here in Laodicea, there was a closed door, a door they closed, it appears. And so I want to look at this idea of like, how do they get there? How do you get to this place where Jesus is locked out of his own church? It's a crazy thought. And, And really we see he's kind of referencing this idea of lukewarmness led them to this place. And so listen, again, we want to kind of do what we've done every week, which is break down this text we want to look at who he's writing to, what's going on, because Jesus has some references here that are specific to the church of Laodicea that they would understand that we wouldn't understand unless we lived there at that time period. So we want to walk through this. So let's break this down, because I want to know, how did, how, did we get, how did they get there? How do we avoid getting there? How do we avoid getting to the place where Jesus was locked out of his own church? So let's do what we always do. Let's break this down. Uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, we're going to look at the first point, which is uh, the destination. Who is Jesus writing to? Obviously, we'll look at verse 14. He says, to the angel of the church of Laodicea, right? So we always do this. Uh, but this is the destination. He's writing to the Laodiceans. Now, uh, we, we put up this little map. It's maybe not the most helpful, but it gives you an idea. Remember, these were seven churches in Asia or Asia Minor or what we'd call modern-day Turkey. And they kind of had a circuit. Started with Ephesus, worked their way up all the way to Philadelphia, now Laodicea. Kind of like this circuit here. Jesus speaking to these churches. Now let's talk about Laodicea. Laodicea was a beautiful uh, city. It is a beautiful city. It was a beautiful location. Actually, it was an incredibly wealthy location. Uh, it was so also beautiful. They had like hot springs there in Laodicea that like, it was they were known for. Not too far from Laodicea, people could go. They, they'd stay there. They'd like visit the hot springs. Like imagine going to Iceland and you want to stay in that like blue lagoon. Iceland. That was like, that's where they wanted to go. It was like a destination spot. And so they had this uh, water that was kind of tainted. Laodicea was known, actually, for having to bring in water. They had a six-mile-long six aqueduct uh, to bring water in them from different cities. They had cold water come in from Colossus, and then they had also hot water come in from a different city, uh, from the hot springs. And so they're kind of known for this. They're known for this hot water of, of, like, hot water, and they're known for this cold water that come down. But by the time we get down to them, the water wasn't so cold. It was lukewarm. Uh, Now, this was a crazy wealthy city. This was a banking city. They had a huge bank in Laodicea. There's a lot of traders there, bankers there. Uh, A lot of money was made there. There's a a story or, like, kind of a historical story of a a guy who passed away, and he left 20,000 talents, which some would say would be equivalent to over a billion dollars specifically to the city. Uh, A Roman historian named Tacitus said this about Laodicea. Laodicea, like a lot of these cities we talked about, they're kind of in that fault line area, so they had some earthquakes. And uh, one day they had an earthquake that just leveled the city. I think it was in 1780. And here's what it says. Tacitus wrote, Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources and with no help from us. 
he basically goes on to say, after the city was destroyed, they didn't take any money from Rome. They had enough money in their own budget to rebuild their own city. I mean, like, imagine New Orleans just being hit, right? And it's leveled. The city's leveled, but they go, we're so wealthy, we don't need any federal help. We can rebuild it ourselves. That's what Laodicea was, an incredibly wealthy city. They're also known for their fashion. Uh, in Laodicea, they have like this black wool, and they had some dyes that people would like, go there for. They were known for their clothing, their wool, their dyes. I mean, this is like where you'd go to get an Armani suit. Ladies, you'd go here to get your Dolce and Cabana purse. I have no idea if I even said that right. But that's where they'd go, right? They would go there like for this. It's a wealthy city, a fashionable city. And then also they're known for the medicine. They had a hospital here. They had a temple to the Greek god Asclepios. So they had like a focus on medicine. They're actually specifically known for like their eye ointments. Uh, so this eye ointment would be sent out around the world. And they're known for that. Now, we'll see why this matters. I'm not just trying to give you just facts about it. Jesus actually speaks in such a way where he's dressing all of these things, their wealth, their fashion, their eye ointment that they're known for. He's really speaking into all of it. So this is who he is uh, writing to. This is who Jesus is speaking to. Now, remember, number two is this. There's always a description of Jesus. And every single week, there's a different description of Jesus. This is fascinating. In verse 14, Jesus describes himself, and it's a different way he always would describe himself. Specifically, he would describe himself in a way that would make sense to that city, that would, like, be for them. So let's keep reading. Verse 14, here's what Jesus says about himself. These things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Let's kind of look at these titles. First, the Amen. Jesus calls himself the Amen. We see this one other time where God actually gives himself the title of the Amen. The like, so be it. The word is true. Or like, let it be. This is an interesting way uh, Jesus describes himself. I think the word Amen is actually used 10 different times in Revelation. But it, Jesus would actually speak like this. He would say, verily, verily, I say to you, or truly, truly, I say to you, amen, amen, I, see, I say to you. It's almost like, let it be, may it be, this is going to be truth. This is interesting to me. I love this about Jesus, that Jesus is saying, I'm the amen. I'm the let it be. May it come to pass. Let it happen. I am truth. You know, Paul picked up on this theme in 2 Corinthians 1. In 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20, let me just throw the verse up there so you can see it. Uh, here's what Paul said about this. He says, for all of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Let's listen again to that. All of the promises of God are in Christ Jesus, yes and amen. Amen. And it says even again, that is why we utter our amen to God for his glory. Amen was something the church would do, and it's like you hear truth and you go, amen, let it be, may it be, let it come to pass. So be it, Lord. I agree. Yes, let it happen. Can I tell you, I love this. They even say that we utter this unto God. Church, like I think our church, we could actually use this a little bit more. It's okay to say amen. Can I just be really clear? It's okay to be like, amen. It's okay. It's okay to utter that. Again, Second Corinthians 1, this is like, for all of you Bible people, like I want to do what the Bible says. It says this, we utter our amen to God for his glory. There is something about saying like, yes, God, I agree. Amen. So be it. Me, you're honestly, honestly, amen's like, I'm joining with this truth. I'm, I'm going to participate with this. Amen. Let it be. God, let it come to pass. I'm with you. What you said is true, God. And I love that this is the title for Jesus, that Jesus is the amen. He goes, these things says the amen. 
that it's going to happen. It's going to come to pass. All Because one of the beautiful, when I, we'll get into this when we get into 2 Corinthians, cannot wait, but all of the promises that are in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Christ, yes and amen. That Jesus fulfilled the if so, and we get the, the benefit of that promise. It's unbelievable. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Let it be. We agree. And he says, hey, hey, Phil, hey, um, Laodicea, I'm true. I'm the amen. Keep going. He says, the faithful and true witness. This was a title we saw again about Jesus in Revelation 1. He's called the faithful witness. He's reminding them, you're not as faithful, but I'm faithful. I'm the true witness. Think about even that word witness. You know, when you're a witness to something, like what, what, what happens? I, I kind of wrote down a few thoughts. Like, we can just check this out. A witness is someone who saw something with their own eyes. They must be honest, and they must have the ability to communicate uh, what uh, you have to say about the, the event you saw. Here's the thing. I was uh, listening to someone the other day. I had a coffee shop like I always do, just kind of over, over, eavesdrop a little bit. Uh, but they're like, yeah, we just don't know what happens when you die, right? No one's ever rose again. And I'm like, Jesus rose again. You know, and then maybe I just interrupt them. I'm like, no, we, do. we have an eyewitness who conquered death, the true witness. The idea of, of this witness, and it's funny, I, um, one time I witnessed a, like, a pretty terrible accident where a car slammed into a city bus and the bus goes on the curb and it was like, it was chaos. And I was, this, I don't know, this is like years ago, <laughs> but I actually was in my car, I saw this happen, the guy just drove off. So I, don't, I just followed them and then I started honking my horn, flashing my lights, I don't know, I just was doing it. So I followed them, honking my horn, flashing my lights, and it's a lady, she pulls over and I mean, she was just, she was hammered. She was not. She pushed me, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm okay. I'm like, you just hit a city bus. She's like, yeah, but are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm okay. And so I'm like trying to talk to her and she's like, okay, I'm going to go. I'm like, you can't leave. Like you just hit a bus. Don't leave. And so she like gets her car and like I memorize her license plate. I call the police and I'm like, I just start saying the license plate number. I don't know. I just didn't want to forget it. And anyways, like months later, I get called back to have like this court deposition thing. Like I'm, I was the only witness supposedly. And so I'm giving the, my kind of my testimony of what I saw, what happened, what was going on. And it's funny because the person who was like interviewing me was like, well, how do we know you're not making this up? And I'm like, I don't know. I saw it. And they're like, well, what do you do for a living? I'm like, I'm a pastor. And they go, darn it. <laughs> and they said that. And I'm like, oh, that's really funny. Like the character matters, right? And the point is, it might not always be the case, but the point is, Jesus said, I'm the faithful and true witness. You know, you can trust me. I'm the one you can count on, you can look to. Like, you can trust me in this. The faithful and true, their true witness. Even this phrase, look at the beginning of the creation of God. And you're like, what does that mean? Does that mean Jesus was created? No. This word communicates the priority of the creation of God. The, the origin, actually, is the, a better translation. The origin of the creation of God. It's something Paul would say in Colossians 1 verse 15. Uh, Paul said this, the firstborn over all creation. He uses that phrase about Jesus. The firstborn over all of creation. The origin. The, the word is protocos of like priority. The priority over all of creation. The number one. The preeminent one. The one this is all about. The one the creation story is about. Paul in Colossians 1.15, like I mentioned, he said this, but then he goes on to say in verse 18, Jesus is the beginning, again this phrase, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus is, you could say, the firstborn of creation, the origin of creation, and you could say he's the priority from the dead. Like, he conquered death. The first one to resurrect, to stay resurrected. He's the first one, the priority, the origin, what this is all about. Jesus is reminding them, again, of I just can make dead things alive. He's reminding them that he is the origin of life, that he makes life, and they're in this lukewarm state, and he's just reminding them of who he is in light of that. He's the amen, the true and faithful witness. He's the creation of God, the beginning, the priority. And then it goes on. We'll keep, keep going with this thought. Number three, next we're going to see the rebuke that comes from Jesus. 
Really, to every church, Jesus has some sort of rebuke, like I mentioned, except for Philadelphia and Sardis. But he has some sort of strong words for them. So let's read verse 15. Here's what Jesus says now. Verse 15, Jesus says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now this is interesting because Jesus doesn't really go on to say it's because of your, your heresy, your bad doctrine. He doesn't even say it's because of your corrupt lifestyle. He just says you're lukewarm. He doesn't really pinpoint necessarily like what, what is it about that that makes it lukewarm. There's a lot of spe- speculation kind of around that. It just seems that this church was inc- incredibly complacent. That it's not like they're going off the deep end, but they're also not passionate about Jesus. They're in this weird spot. I want you to think about that. It's not like we're not doing all these, like, you know, our lifestyle is not morally corrupt. Our doctrine's not crazy out there. And we're not, you know, we're not really th- that passionate about Jesus. He just goes, you're just in this lukewarm state. You're neither, you're neither cold nor you're hot. I wish you were cold or hot. You know, this kind of seems to be referring to like three different spiritual states people can be in. Cold, hot, lukewarm. Cold, this is where I, I think people disagree, and I want to talk through this with you. Cold seems to be the idea like maybe you're just cold towards God, like you're dead towards God. Sardis seemed to be that cold church. They're dead towards God. That's somewhere just like maybe even anti-God. It's weird. People say, but why would Jesus want people to be cold towards him? There's no way it could mean that. And maybe they're right. Maybe they're onto something. Maybe he's not really saying, I wish you were completely anti-God or cold towards me. But at the same time, I think when someone's cold towards God, they almost know they're cold towards God. Like when someone's cold, they can be or dead towards God or cold towards God or numb to God. It's like, well, they're in the place where they can be resurrected. They're in the place where they can be like made alive. They're in the place where like they know they have this, this need Lukewarm's this weird spot where maybe they don't even acknowledge it. Like, we're pretty good. We're pretty good, actually. Sometimes maybe it is better to be cold so God can, like, resurrect you, make you alive. You know, this idea of being hot, obviously, is just kind of referring to the zealousness, like you're passionate for Jesus. He even says, repent and be zealous. We'll talk about that, but he's saying, be zealous. Like, that zealous seems to communicate. Even the word, the origin, communicates the idea of being hot. Just like, you know, me, we as Christians are weird. We get some weird, like, you know, Christian terminology, like, are you on fire for God? Like, I know that's kind of been, like, used maybe too much in the 90s, and well, I don't want to bring that back, I'm not saying. But there's this idea that is so good, like, just are you just passionate for God? Are you, like, all in? And then obviously there seems to be this idea of just they are lukewarm. Like, they were complacent. You know, if you've ever been in this place, I think you know what this is like. You know, it's hard. This is one of those things, even praying through this, it's like, you know when you're lukewarm. I don't know how to put it. Other than you're like in this place where you go, Jesus, like, I'm not like anti, I'm not like, I don't want nothing to do with God, and I, I'm, I'm just not, I'm not all in. And if you've been there, it's this miserable place, man. I, I do remember being in this place for like a good period of time. I was like 15, 16, 17, going, I don't know, like, God, I love you, but I, I don't, I kind of want to do my own thing. And I remember just being in this place where it just was so miserable because it is true, that old saying is true, like, you have too much of the world to enjoy Jesus, and you have too much of Jesus to enjoy the world, and you're kind of like miserable. And you're like, I can't really enjoy Jesus because I'm compromising, or there's just things in my life that are, are not good. And you're like, I can't really enjoy the world because I also acknowledge that, like, I should be living for God, but I don't really want to be. And it's like this miserable place to be in. And Jesus says, you know, you're neither cold nor you're hot. You're, you're lukewarm. I will vomit you out of my mouth. Even the phrase, like, this is just strong language from Jesus, obviously. You're like, what does that mean? I don't know. I don't want to be vomited out of the mouth of Jesus. That's what I, I know. <laughs> like, it's like, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? It's like, well, just don't let it happen. Like, I don't want anyone to be in that place. 
Some talk about because, like, they're in his mouth idea of, like, they're, they're on his heart. They're on the tip of his tongue. Like, he talks about he loves them. He goes, but you know what? You're just so lukewarm. There just seems to just be this idea of this lukewarmness that is even more dangerous than being anti-God. It's crazy that's what's being communicated here. That it might be more dangerous for us spiritually when you're lukewarm than when you're just kind of completely out there in rebellion towards God. It just seems to communicate the idea because maybe you think you're okay. And I think Jesus is trying to speak to this church in a way where it's like, this is not okay. Wake up, church. Like, wake up. I need to get your attention. I'm going to use strong language to wake you up. Because you're lukewarm, I'll vomit you, he says, out of my mouth. You know, uh, Adrian Rogers, a pastor, said this. He says, lukewarm Christians have done more harm to the cause, or have done more to harm the cause of Jesus Christ than all the prostitutes, bartenders, pornographers, and drug pushers combined. I think it's a very interesting quote. I think you can make that argument. That when you're around lukewarm Christians, you go, man, you're doing more damage. People go, aren't you a Christian? We're like, yeah, but it doesn't mean I'm perfect. <laughs> and you just do whatever. Sometimes it can, it can do more damage. When you call yourself a follower of Jesus, but your life is lukewarm, maybe it does more damage to the gospel of Jesus. You know, G. Campbell Morgan I think one of, the, one of the most phenomenal preachers of all times, he said this, lukewarmness is the, the worst form of blasphemy. Lukewarm Christians say, Jesus, I believe in you, but you just don't excite me. I believe in you, but I don't intend to serve you with fire and fervor. And then he goes on to say, what an insult to yawn in the face of Almighty God. What an interesting thought. It's funny, I, I do think about that. Like, my son, who I'm, like, sharing something really important with, and he just, like, yawns. I don't know if you've heard someone yawn. And you're like, what the heck is that? Like, don't yawn. Like, I'm talking about something important, right? And you're like, like, like they don't care. It's like, what an insult. That's a lukewarm Christianity. It's just that you're yawning in the face of God. You see, bore me, God. And he said, this could be the, one of the greatest dangers to be in. It might be better to be Sardis than to be Laodicea. It might be better to be cold towards God than to be in this lukewarm state. Listen, this is just one of those things where I think Jesus needs to wake us up a bit. Guys, they're, they're ignorant. Listen, they were ignorant to where they're at spiritually. They were self-deceived. We will talk about that. They thought they were rich, but he says, but you're poor. Remember what he said to Smyrna, the persecuted church? He goes, you're poor. You're physically poor. He says, I know you're poor, but you are rich. To this church, he says, I know you're rich, but you're poor. It's crazy. There's a false estimation of their spiritual condition. It is possible for myself, your, us, to have a false estimation of our spiritual state between us and God. And this is Laodicea. And he's saying, just stop it. Stop being lukewarm. Be, either one is better. Cold or hot, just don't be lukewarm. I mean, this is just coming from Jesus himself. And this is one of those things to, sh- to shake us and to wake us up a bit. Here's what I want to do. I want to talk about this briefly because I don't want to move on from this. Um, Francis Chan, he's an author, a pastor. Maybe you've read his books or heard of him, but he has a book called Crazy Love. And in this book, Crazy Love, he talks about lukewarm Christians. And he actually, I think, names 18 to 20 ways you might know if you're a lukewarm Christian. Uh, I kind of put it down to 10. These are his ideas, but 10 ways he writes to know if you're a lukewarm Christian. And honestly, I, I fall into some of these categories. Like there's some tendencies there. I go, oh my gosh, Jesus, as I read this, wake me up. Like there's some things here that are not good. So let's just go through this. Here's the first thing he says. We'll walk through this fairly quickly. He says, lukewarm people attend church fairly regularly. That was just a simple little statement. You know, you, it's, it's still part of your life a little bit. Fairly regularly. We have to be aware that it's possible to be at church every week and to be a lukewarm Christian. It's just possible. 
It's what uh, Isaiah spoke about. It's what Jesus says in the New Testament. Uh, it's, it's Isaiah 29. He says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. It's a crazy thought to go, I can, honor, I can worship you, I can sing to you, I can talk about you, but still have a heart that's far from you. And you wouldn't know. That's, that's one of those things I go, God, is that me? I think there's a side of it, you go, God, I, I don't want to just honor you with my lips, my heart's far from you. It's possible to be in that state. He goes on to say this, number two, lukewarm people are moved by stories about people who do radical things for Christ, yet they do not act. Oh, I was like, God, <laughs> You're, did you hear a radical story for someone who, they did something for Jesus? You're like, yeah, that's awesome. And Jesus and the Holy Spirit's like, I want you to do that. You're like, no, 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 that's for them, <laughs> not me. You know, I think of what James says, you're hearer of the word, but not a doer. Uh, another way he put it, I, I kind of wrote it down this way, lukewarm people call radical what Jesus expected out of all of his followers. We go, man, they're just radical Christians. Though. That's, like, that's like weird Christians. I mean, they, they love Jesus so much, they did that for it. And it, we call radical what it's like, no, that's the norm. Deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow me. You want to find your life, you got to lose it. I mean, those radical statements of Jesus are just for the common Christian, for the common follower of Jesus. Not like, well, if you really take Jesus serious, then you'll lose your life so you can find it. It's like, no, this is for everyone. We call radical what Jesus expects as normal. Going on, he says, lukewarm people tend to choose what is popular over what is right when they are in conflict. Man, this goes basically the idea of if you're in a moment of conflict, you'll choose, well, what's the popular answer in this moment versus what does God's word say? So if, if culture has a, this, a postmodern secular worldview on something, and this is a common answer, uh, this is what people would expect us to say, I don't want to be viewed differently, so I'm going to say what everyone else is saying. I'm just going to kind of f- fall in line with this. Rather than maybe challenge status quo, rather than maybe saying the hard thing, we just kind of agree like, yeah, yeah, that's in right now. They'll probably be in for a couple of years until it changes. Okay, I'm for that, right? Actually, one way Jesus said it in Luke 6 is, Woe to you when men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. There will come a point in time if Jesus goes, You know you're, you're missing the point if you're always agreeing with what's popular in culture. Woe to you when men speak well of you. That's how they spoke of the false prophets. Like there comes a point in time where you say, No, I have to disagree with culture on this. I'm sorry, I have to disagree with what's happening. This is not okay. This is not a good worldview. This has actually led to more harm. This has led to more suicide. This has led to more, like sometimes we have to just look at it and go, I'm sorry, I disagree with what culture or the world might be saying. I disagree with this humanistic, secular perspective. I have to disagree with it. And if you're always, people are saying, like, if you're always agreeing with what common culture is saying, I think maybe you're more in line with the world's view than God's view. And this is what he says, this is how you might know you're lukewarm. Number five, lukewarm people don't really want to be saved from their sin. They want to be saved from the penalty of their sin. Oh, again, I'm sorry. This is one of those, hey, welcome to church, I know. But this is one of those punch in the throat kind of things. Man, you want to be, be saved, not from your sin, but from the penalty of sin. I think we can see this within Christianity. I just don't want to go to hell. It's like, okay, that's good. But that's not it. That's not just it. Like Jesus said, I have come to give you life and life more abundantly. It's not just so you don't go to hell one day. It's so that today you can live in a more abundant life. And it's so much more than just being saved from the penalty of sin. Like, Jesus wants to save you from you. Jesus wants to save me from me, from who I am, from the self-destructive patterns and behaviors I can have. Not just save me from hell. Yes, thank you, Jesus, that you saved us from hell. But it's so much more than that. We cannot make the gospel as simple as Jesus saves you from hell. Thank you, Jesus, for that amazing truth. But there's still, like, daily I need to be saved. Daily I need this sanctification process in my life. Amen? We still need this daily. And he goes on to say this. uh, Lukewarm people say they love Jesus, 
And he is indeed a part of their lives, their money, and their thoughts, but he isn't allowed to control their lives. He, that's how he describes a lukewarm Christian. He, he's a part of my life, but he can't control it. He's a part of my life, but he doesn't have any say over my prayer life, the way I evangelize, the way I give, the way I serve. I mean, I go to church. Like, again, he's a part of my life, but he just is not in control. He says, lukewarm people rarely share their faith with their neighbors, coworkers, or friends. Lukewarm people, he goes on to say, claim to love God, but they do not love him with all their heart, soul, and strength. Their love doesn't lead to obedience. I love God, just don't want to obey him. Number nine, he says, lukewarm people ask, how far can I go before it's considered a sin? Instead of how can I keep myself pure as a temple of the Holy Spirit, they ask, how much do I have to give instead of how much can I give? Man, the, the way we ask it, the way we word it is everything. How far can I go before it's a sin? Rather than how can I stay pure? How much do I have to give? Rather than how, how much can I give? The, the idea is, again, it goes from you have to do it to you want to do it. You don't have to read your Bible. You don't have to go to church. You don't have to serve. You don't have to do any of those things. But what the Holy Spirit does when you, when you really encounter Jesus and you're growing in your faith, it's not going to happen right away. But there's those times where you go, oh my gosh, wait a second. I get to pray. I get to serve. I get to be in community. I get to be a part of this. Thank you, Jesus. And he says that there's this shift that happens. Number 10 is this. Lukewarm people wouldn't look much different if they suddenly stopped believing in God. You know, here's, again, why I want to just walk through this. He's saying you're lukewarm. You're not hot or cold. You think about that last phrase, man. If some people stop believing in God, you go, oh, their life still looks the same. Like the point, there should be some radical difference in our lifestyle and our behavior and our choices and how we live and act. So I wanted to kind of continue this. By the way, Jesus says this. Can I just give us some, like, refreshing words? He says, I will. Not like I have or it's done. He gives them an out in a second. We'll see. Be zealous and repent. He, he doesn't say, it's too late. I already vomited you out of my mouth. Sorry, guys. Like Jesus is loving enough to say it before it's done. He's loving enough to say, repent. There's still time. And we got to keep that in mind. That if you find yourself in that spot, there's still time. You say, Jesus, I'm done. I'm, I'm done being in this lukewarm state. You know, on, the church, on a church or a cathedral in Germany, uh, I forget the name of the cathedral. I think it's the Lübeck uh, Cathedral. There's this saying on, on the ceiling. It says, you call me master and obey me not. You call me light and see me not. You call me way and walk me not. You call me life and choose me not. You call me wise and follow me not. You call me good and love me not. You call me rich and ask me not. You call me eternal and seek me not. You call me noble and serve me not. You call me gracious and trust me not. You call me might and honor me not. You call me just and fear me not. If I condemn you, blame me not." Just this idea of how our words can be there, but our actions are not. And he's saying this is the idea of being lukewarm. Their self-sufficiency was based on self-deception. They had this self-sufficiency. We're rich. We're good. We're fine. Like, we are good. And it led to self-deception. Let's keep going in verse 17. You're like, I don't want to keep going. That's too bad. Uh, verse 17. Here's what Jesus says. Uh, he says, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and you do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Again, they're boasting. Listen to that. They said, I am rich. I have need of nothing. Like, this was a saying of theirs. We're rich. We're good. We're good. We're fine. We have need of nothing. And Jesus goes, and you don't know that you're, you're uh, wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked? I mean, listen to those terms that Jesus uses. By the way, let's just say with this. Remember, he says, you're poor, blind, naked. What did they say? We're rich. I mean, we are like the richest city in the world. We're Laodicea. Like, we have so much. We are personally rich. We're good. 
Hey, we have fashion, man. Like, we have wool here, we have dye. So he goes, you're rich, but you know, you're poor. He goes, you're naked. You're naked, you're fashion, you're naked. He goes, you're blind, your eye solve, your eye ointment thing, you're, you're blind. Everything they could like boast in, Jesus is saying you can't boast in that. Everything they think, they think they could find credit in. We're rich, we have money, we have eye stuff, we're good. He goes, no, but you're really blind. I think this is crazy how Jesus kind of turns this up on their, like over on their head. He's like, don't boast in your strengths. Those are not really your strengths. You're not really rich, you're poor. You're not really clothed, you're naked. It's all that you can see, you're really blind. The things they're known for, he calls out and speaks into. And again, it's one of those things where we have to kind of go, Jesus, what would, what would that be for me? What would that be for us? What are we boasting in that? Jesus like, no, don't boast in that. You think this makes you secure. This, you think this puts you in a good place with me, but in reality, he's saying it doesn't. And then he goes on to say something else. Now, here's the exhortation, all right? So we'll go to number four, the exhortation. Here's where he's offering them an out. Thank you, Jesus, for this out. Uh, we'll keep going in verse seven or 18. He says, now this, I counsel you. I encourage you, I, I give you my advice, <laughs> strong advice, to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with the eye salve that you may see. Do you see what Jesus just throws at them? I, first of all, I love this. He doesn't just call them out for the sake of calling them out. Like, thank you, Jesus, for that. He's not just like, hey, but you're wretched, poor, blind, miserable, naked. Like, he doesn't just call them out and leave them that, like, now good luck. Right? Jesus gives them out. He goes, I counsel you to buy from me. He that has no money, come buy, eat, and drink, Isaiah would say. He goes, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. This gold refined in the fire just speaks of a faith that's been purified through trials. I mean, that's just really what it speaks of throughout the Bible. Gold refined in the fire is usually a metaphor or term to express that faith has been refined. It's come out purified. It's come out better. Uh, Job says this in Job 23.10. He says, but he knows the way that I take, and when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. This idea of refined gold is, man, once I've been tested, once I've been tried, it's refined, it's purified. Jesus saying, hey, I, I count you, buy from me this gold refined in the fire. I do love that. We used to sing that, uh, that song in Isaiah. I don't know, we were weird, but we used to sing like, um, he that hath no money, come buy, eat, and drink. The idea that Jesus offers us something better. You have no money, you can still buy from him. Come buy from me gold refined in the fire. Just come get it, it's free, it's there. Come, you, you're, you think you're rich, but you're poor. But I have, I have something for you that will make you truly rich, truly spiritual rich. And Jesus offers us something better. He, he also speaks about their nakedness. He goes, you're naked. Come get new garments from me. Isaiah says that. It says he gives us a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Isaiah talks about how we've been robed in God's righteousness or in Christ's righteousness. In Zechariah 3, there's a story of the high priest standing before God, wearing his high priestly robes, the most glorious robes, like there's gold intertwined within his robes. There's 12 precious gems on him, and his, his robes turn as filthy rags before the Lord. And then this is where Jesus in Isaiah 3, the angel of the Lord, who we believe is Jesus, says, put my robes on him, put robes on him. And he clothes him. And the point is, he says, you know, you, th you boast in your wealth, you boast in your fashion, you're naked, but I can give you white garments, I can give you better garments. I can clothe you. I can give you what you truly need. I mean, there's something beautiful about the gospel of Jesus where you realize I'm just clothed in Christ's righteousness. I can never boast. Like, my righteousness, the good things I do is as filthy rags to the Lord. But can I tell you, the gospel says Jesus has put his robe on me. It's the prodigal who comes home, and the father says, put my best robe on him. This is a constant theme throughout the Bible of the Bible saying you are naked before God, but God has clothed you in his righteousness. That you and I are far from God, dead in our sin, but God has clothed you and said, you don't have to be naked. It's intimidating to think about sinning before God 
and all that would be revealed. And God says, listen, but I clothe you in my righteousness. Put on them white garments. You are mine. Come get that. And then he says this I solve thing, which I just love. Don't you love this about Jesus? Like he's literally speaking to what they would know. He's like, and then come, get I solve from me so you can see. You think you have this, this is what makes you wealthy. You export this all over the world. He goes, come get it from me. I have the true eye solve, this eye ointment that can make you see. I mean, Jesus did this in the Gospels throughout where he'd find like, oh, you're thirsty? I have water, we'll never thirst again. Like God constantly always like knows the context and finds this redemptive thing in it. And I love that about Jesus. He goes, oh, you want to see? I have some eye solve for you, you'll see. You know, there's something about this. I'm not wealthy, I'm poor. I'm not clothed, I'm naked. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I can't see, I'm, I'm blind. And Jesus is like, no, no. I'll clothe you. I'll make you wealthy. I'll I'll make you see. I think of John chapter 9, the blind man who encountered Jesus. And if you ever read that story, like this blind man was once blind. Now he sees. He's like under trial. Like, how can you see? He's like, I don't know. All I know is I was blind, but now I see. Like, that's like his testimony, right? And it's funny, when you read in John 9, this encounter this blind man has with Jesus, he calls Jesus the man. He says, in verse 17, we'll put up here, he goes, you must be a prophet. And you see this like progression. And he goes, hey, actually, maybe you're from God. And then he says, Lord, after he can see, at which point he worships Jesus. And I love this. This is what happens to blind people. This is what happened to me spiritually. Maybe this happens like just people. Jesus is just a man for a while. He's just a man. Maybe you spend some time with him. You go, oh my gosh, he's a prophet. He's, maybe he's from God. He's from God. Then you go, no, 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 he's more than that. He's Lord in which we worship him. There was this progression with the blind man. It's what John Newton so famously said, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. He's going, this is the gospel. I once was blind, but now I see. I once was woke, but now I see. I once was whatever, and now I see, right? The point is, I once was fill in the blank, but now I see it through the lens of Jesus. And he goes, I can see. Hey, come, get this from me. Come, buy this from me. Verse 19, let's just keep reading. So Jesus goes, come on. You have an out. You don't have to stay here. Verse 19, what does Jesus say? As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Wait, what does this mean? It means Jesus loves the Laodiceans. Isn't this beautiful? He's like, as many as I love, I, I rebuke, I call out. I mean, this is a theme throughout the Bible. It's Proverbs 3.12. It says, for whom the Lord loves, he corrects. This is repeated again in Hebrews. Maybe you remember that when we went through the book of Hebrews. This is that theme. Whom I love, I chasten, I pursue, I correct, I discipline. It, it is funny being a parent because I have to like tell my son this all the time. He's like, you don't love me. You just punish me. I'm like, that's because I love you. I'm like, it's because I love you. I have to correct you. I have to come alongside of you. I have to speak into you. I have to like lead you into a way that will lead to life. And this is what Jesus is saying, hey, I've loved you. That's why I'm rebuking you. Whom I love, I rebuke. And it's funny because, again, we don't really read that. Like in the 21st century followers of Jesus, I don't know if we read that. We go, whom Jesus loves, he blesses. He gives to. He whatever. Jesus like, no, who I, who I love, I rebuke. I, I chasten. I correct. I, I pursue after. What a, what a good sign Jesus loves you. Hey, if you're not being corrected, that's when you should begin to worry. <laughs> If you're not being disciplined, that's when you begin to go, oh my gosh, what's going on? My point is Jesus and who I love, I chase and I pursue. Then he says, therefore, in light of all of this, in light of where you're at, in light, of, in light of what I offer, white garments, vision that you might see, he goes, therefore, he says, repent or be zealous and repent. Therefore, get out of this lukewarm state, go back to being hot. Go back to being uh, not cold, not lukewarm, but hot. Be zealous be passionate, be all in, and repent. 
And again, this word repent is repeated so often in these seven churches, and I know it's a word that can kind of get lost or a word we kind of ignore, but it's like such a beautiful, just turn your lifestyle, turn your way back to me. Acknowledge like, that you've been going in a direction, Sam, coming to you, Jesus. Martin Luther, when he, when he nailed up his uh, 95-point thesis on the uh, church, he said this. He wrote this in the letter. He, he said, where is it? He says, all of Christian's life is one of repentance. That is, all of life is truly one of repentance. Jesus is simply inviting us to this place to say, repent, turn to me. Can I, can I say this? Can we actually go on to read what he says in verse 20? It's so profound. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. So Jesus says, in light of this, be zealous, repent. I'm standing at the door knocking. If anyone hears my voice, open the door. I'll come in and dine with him and he with me. I want us to get this picture of Jesus. Because think about this. Jesus is outside this church and he's saying, hey, I'm knocking the door. Would you just open and let me in? It's amazing to think Jesus is knocking. And it's, it's crazy. What does that look like? I don't really understand this fully. Maybe you've had Jesus kind of knocking on your life before where it's like, I don't know if it was like a correction there's a person who loves you, is pursuing you. I don't know if you're reading scripture one day and you just feel like Jesus is speaking to you. Maybe you've sat in church, you're worshiping, you're listening to the, 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 the music, the sermon, you're kind of listening to all of that, taking it in, and you just sense the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. You sense God is doing something. Maybe you've just been on a walk or you're driving alone and God just speaks to you and says, what are you doing right now? Why are you running from me? Why is your heart so far from me? I don't really know what this looks like, but I think it can look a lot of different ways where Jesus is just totally knocking at the door of your life and saying, let me in. Now, here's what's interesting, and everyone points this out. He doesn't say, if the church opens the door, I'll come in. He says, if anyone. Jesus actually makes this incredibly personal. This is not that Jesus is necessarily just outside the church, even though he is, but it's like a personal thing. He says, hey, will you let me in? Like, maybe there's churches out there, and he goes, I'm outside those doors, but will individuals let me in? Will you let me in? He makes it such a personal thing. Uh, one author, Charles Spurgeon, who maybe you've heard of, he said this, we must not talk about setting the church right. We must pray for grace, each one for himself. For the text does not say, if the church will open the door, but if any man hear my voice and hear and open the door, it must be done by individuals. The church will only get right by each man getting right. That is it. We will only get right by each individual taking this on. This point is, this is not just the church's burden. This is the church, you individually, this is our burden. Man, Jesus is saying, hey, open the door. If individuals get right, watch the church get right. You know, it's been said the idea of like, how can we see revival? Like, where does revival start? Like, where does revival begin? One author said, take some chalk and draw a circle around yourself. That's where revival begins. Where does revival begin? Does it begin in like some global way, some big way? He goes, no, it starts with one person. If anyone opens the door. I mean, again, I think about the language of just Jesus being outside going, I want in. Think about the heart of Jesus, man. I mean, this is his house. What are we doing? Like, this is his house. My life, my body, my temple. It's like he's outside. How is he outside? And you just see this gentleness of Jesus, this wooing of Jesus. Hey, I'm knocking. We let me in. You see the heart of Jesus so clearly communicated. You know, there's this English painter named Holman Hunt who drew kind of a famous picture of this. And we'll put it up here really quick for you. And he, he drew this. And then one person asked him one day, they said, hey, why isn't there, you know, maybe this is pretty obvious, but he goes, why isn't there a door handle on the outside? He said, because there's not. There's a door handle only on the inside. You have to open up. You just say, Jesus, I let you in. You see, this is so much more than even salvation. You think about this. That Jesus is speaking to believers who've gotten lukewarm. 
You know, because Jesus, I, I can't even say, like, you know, he opens the door. I mean, he just makes dead people alive, man. Like, this is so much more than that. But then when it comes to followers of Jesus, it's like, let him in. How have we put him outside of his own place, his own community? This is what he's speaking into. A guy named Steve Gregg says, familiar as an evangelistic text for sinners, this verse in context actually expresses Christ's feeling of being an outsider from his own church, desiring to be invited back in. Meaning, we kind of use this as like, hey, people who don't know Jesus, open your door to, open the door of your heart to him. When this is really speaking to believers, saying, hey, believers, let him back in. This is more a word for us than anyone else. If you think right now, Revelation 3.20 applies to someone who's just lost. I think we're missing the point. Jesus is speaking to the church. He who has an ear, let me hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He's speaking to a community of believers saying, I'm outside the door and let me in, I'm knocking. So Jesus is speaking more to us, I think, than anyone else. So this is a word for us saying, hey, like where are you at with Jesus? Is it Jesus, you own this place, this is yours. I'm a guest in your home. Not come on in, Jesus. Like, no, like this is his place. It'd be weird if you're in my house and you're like, Josiah, you can come in. I'd be like, yeah, I can come in. This is my house, right? Like, this is Jesus's, and it's like, so Jesus, like, take your rightful place. Come in. I, I, we surrender. We give it to you. Uh, this is a time before we just keep going and reading the text. This is just a moment for us to say, so where are you at with Jesus? Like, are you in a season of life where it's just sweet, where it's just like you are, you are connecting with Jesus, your prayer life, your worship life, the way you meditate on scripture or read scripture, the way you gather, like, is this a sweet time? Is this a time where you go, man, this is difficult, but it's still sweet? Maybe it's painful, but yet it's still good? Or is this a, a time in your life where you're just going, man, this, this has been hard for me? Or this is like in a place where like, I'm more, I just want to do other things. I don't know if I want Jesus in right now. I would say Jesus is speaking to the church and saying, listen, I love you. I'm outside the door. You know how you get here? You get, you get to this place. We get to this place where you become lukewarm towards me. You become cold towards me. You become like just lukewarm towards the things of God where it's like it's just secondary. That following Jesus kind of takes a back seat to school, to work, to life. And Jesus said, I don't want to take back seat anymore. I don't want to be outside anymore. Listen, this is just one of those things where I can't force anything other than I say, Holy Spirit, would you wake us up? Would you do something within my life or church's life where we go, you know what, Jesus, this is your place. Of course, come on in. It's yours. Of course, we open up. Jesus, I ask that you just make us zealous. Like, like make me hungry and passionate again for the things of God. Like, help me learn from this church and, and the church of Ephesus and different, give me, like, return me back to my first love. Like, let me be again, just like fall in love with you all over again. Let the things of God be like the first time. I want to read scripture like I've never read it before. I want to pray like I've, I'm praying for the first time. Like, give me eyes to have this freshness and newness to this. And this is kind of why in this year we're just praying, God, make us spiritually healthy. We want to be alive to the things of God. We want to be alive to the right things. So, church, here's what I'm asking. I'm asking for all of us to kind of make that inward just covenant with God, that inward pledge to God to say, God, no more. I'm going to live for you now. Like, I'm going to lose my life so I can find it. Because there's constant repentance in this. This is true. I mean, there's constantly things that are trying to take the throne of my life or take my attention away. And it's, it has to be this constant thing of, Jesus, I want to dethrone this and put you back on the throne of my life. I want to take this down and put you back in, in first priority of my life. And that is what Jesus is saying. Hey, you can't be hot or cold. This idea of being vomited out of the mouth of Jesus is a very serious warning. He's trying to wake them up. He's trying to use language to say, snap out of it, guys. Snap out of it. Like, if you're cold... I'll vomit you out of my mouth. If you're lukewarm, I'll vomit you out of my mouth. He would snap out, like, wake up to this. 
And this is where I just hope that we as a church can just wake up to. And here's what he ends with, because here's the promise. Because in every single letter, Jesus has a promise. Because there's almost this expectation that the church will hear his words, repent, and walk into the promise. Because he always has a promise to every single church. So here's his promise, verse 21. He says, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Before we even look at the promise to us, keep this in mind. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the throne of the Father. We got to remember that Jesus says, it is finished. He died. He rose again. He ascended into heaven. He's sitting right right now at the right hand of the Father. And he says, listen, that's where I'm at, and I invite you to sit with me on my throne. Obviously, thrones, like when you see like a throne, and you see that, it speaks of power. It speaks of someone's like preeminence. It speaks of someone's authority. Do you know, in the book of Revelation, 45 times the word throne is mentioned. By the way, from here on out, if you just kept reading Revelation, guess what the focal point of, of, of Revelation is? It's a throne. Revelation 4 and 5, the throne. It's just filled with the throne. Describes the throne. The beauty and glory of the throne. Throughout these, these chapters, you're going to see the throne being mentioned. The point is, Jesus said, I invite you into that. I invite you into this authority that, you can, that is shared with me. It is unbelievable to think what Jesus invites us into. I don't even fully get that. Like, Jesus, wait, what? Like, we get to sit with you? We have authority with you? Here's the thing. There are seven different promises to these seven churches. Even most of these churches have two or three promises attached to it. I would encourage you to go back and read this. Overcome, overcome. That new name, that new stone, that manna from heaven. You, you think about this, sit at the right hand of God, the name of God being written at, at, on you. All these different promises to him who overcomes. This is that reminder for us of like, yeah, it's not worth it. It's not worth being lukewarm. It's not worth Jesus being outside the door. I want to be in this place where you say, Jesus, I want to overcome. How do we overcome? 1 John 5 again says, by he who has faith in the Son overcomes. Just he who has faith in the Son overcomes. Your faith in Jesus, according to John, is how you and I overcome. Because Jesus overcame, we overcome. Because Jesus was triumphant, and we boast in Jesus, we are triumphant. Because you are overcomers because of what Christ has done. So let's just do this. We're going to pray. We're going to pray, and we're going to say, Lord, take away those lukewarm tendencies. Take away those areas of my life that I'm just kind of becoming numb, becoming complacent. I would say, listen, it's better to be cold than lukewarm. That's better, but it's best to be hot. It's best to say, Jesus, make me spiritually alive. I just want to pray and give some time for the Lord to speak and move, and then we're just going to worship Jesus and give him even more time. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. Father, we thank you for the truth that your son, Jesus, is sitting at your right hand. We thank you for these, these words of Jesus that are to stir us and wake us up and remind us, Jesus, that you are alive, that you are on the throne, and you invite us into this, this intimate relationship with you. And God, just pray for everyone in this place. If we've just been kind of on the fence, what a miserable place to be in. I just pray that you would just kind of wake us up to that. That God, if there is compromise, if there is things in our life that has gotten in the way of you, Jesus, that you would take your rightful place again. God, I just pray that revival would begin here. It would begin with us. That Jesus, it wouldn't start somewhere else. It would start with us individually. Jesus, we, um, we this morning, even right now, want to just acknowledge this idea of um, the whole house is yours. Come on in. It's yours. We want to buy from you uh, the, this white garment that you promise us, that we're clothed in your righteousness. 
that you have gold refined in the fire, that Jesus, the idea that we are wealthy in you, that our spiritual wealth is in you. God, we just ask that you would just speak to us. God, if anyone is in this place that is not right with you, they put things in place of you that today they surrender to that. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Church, we're going to worship. Um,